Everyone is a character. All characters are Tatiana. Conclusion, Tatiana is everyone. You're listening to Tatiana is Everyone, an Orphan Black podcast. I'm your host, Stephanie, and I am sadly by myself today. Well, kind of, a little bit by myself. Chris is not here today. I promise we have not broken up. I know I wasn't on the last episode. We are still talking to each other, barely, but we are. I'm kidding. Uh, but, <laughs> but I'm not alone today. I'm joined by a couple of friends of mine. My friend Elizabeth Cootie, Dr. Elizabeth Cootie. I just like calling her that, Dr. Cootie. It's fun to be called Dr. Cootie. <laughs> and also by her partner, almost Dr. Dave. Hi, Dr. Dave. Almost Dr. Hello. Dave. <laughs> almost Dr. And uh, almost Dr. Dave. He is uh, somebody who has a expertise in philosophy and ethics. And I thought he had some interesting stuff to say about today's topic, which is kind of a follow-up from the last episode in, in which Chris and Dawson were talking about Castor and how it reflects on masculinity. This week, we are just talking generally about the Castor storyline and how it involved, how Orphan Black incorporated the military this past season. So let's kind of get started there. What did y'all think about the introduction of this kind of third entity in the clone conspiracy? Because the first two seasons were very much about Dyad and the Neolutionists and the Prolethians. And then we got a big dose of the military here in season three. In trying to think about these things, my main contribution to this conversation, I think, will be mostly just framework type of uh, reflection. And that in trying to make sense of the mess that was the treatment of Castor as an entity in an otherwise pretty excellently written show. I tried to take a step back and think about, uh, in my experience as a longtime sci-fi watcher, what's usually the reason to clone human beings or even to make androids who are very much like human beings. That's right. And I thought of three just as like a, a, a hermeneutical device to get started talking about it. <laughs> Hang on. What's hermeneutical mean? <laughs> oh, sleep. <laughs> Good job, Dave. Yeah. Just a framework for interpreting things that we can revise later, you know, add items to, take items away. So there were three things I thought of to get started. One is you clone people for purely scientific reasons. You know, can we do it? How do they behave and act? Uh, and that seems to be the motivation for Lita. Right. You want to uh, make a human both to sort of prove that you can, but also just as a way to see how humans tick. Sort of a, you know, if you want to know how a, a clock works, you know, you build a clock for yourself and that makes you, helps you understand every moving part, every piece of it. So, and the, you know, building a clone this way means that you get to observe the building blocks of what it means to uh, make a person and then observe it. But then it goes to sort of the, all of these have sort of a dark extreme. And so right. for, for that first one, the dark extreme there is now you're treating a human being like it's your plaything, like it's your piece of property is the way that they often articulate it on the show. Right. So that's, that's sort of how we fit with the sort of neolutionist dyad people. So. Yeah. So a second major reason that comes up, at least in sci-fi, about why you would clone or make a human-like android is you want someone to do a dirty or difficult job that most human beings uh, wouldn't be up for. So 
in the Star Wars prequels, they have the clone army. You know, we can just keep cloning these soldiers and they can be cannon fodder if need be. Another example with androids would be Blade Runner. You know, we want them to do the dirty work on these mining planets and such so that human-born life forms aren't at risk. Mm -hmm. And that would seem to be part of the motivation of bringing in this military angle with Caster. Mm -hmm. But it doesn't necessarily fit as neatly, and we'll, of course, continue to talk about that. Right. And then the third and final one I would mention that I don't think we have seen yet is a very utilitarian reason for cloning is we just want organs for ourselves. Mm -hmm. Like up to and including, we want a whole human body to take like an old man's consciousness and put it into a younger body and get something like immortality through that. Mm -hmm. I mean, uh, that, that extreme is sort of like the, you create kind of a, just a, you know, the meat of human being instead of as, as these clones are, you've seen them as, you know, they have a consciousness from the get-go. There's no attempt to do that. But that is sort of a dark way of thinking about it. If you could create a clone of your own organs, you could then have as many organs as you needed. You know, have a spare liver, you know. Right. So that's our that's our sort of thinking about how this this caster business fits in. It gives us that military angle. So, you know, just thinking about how that might work into a new way of thinking about clones that we haven't seen yet in Orphan Black until this season. And y'all kind of mentioned it already, but something I think was alluded to, but not necessarily made specific was the purpose of the caster project. And I think what they suggested and, you know, y'all chime in if you think there was other stuff here too, is this idea of beginning military training and sort of indoctrination into the military at a very young age, as I think is a lot of what was implied. Right. It's like they're trying to create like a, a way to make a child soldier in a society, you know, that does not believe that such a thing is ethical. Right. right. Um, it's like a, um, it's like if you start the person on your own, if as the sort of, as, as a uh, diet and the neolutionist kind of thing, alludes to if you're creating humans as a prop as a piece of property then you can you know do with them what you will so why not make them into child soldiers the the weird part that we saw in that is there doesn't seem to be alluded in the show now keep in mind i call this the fictional military the way the show sets it up is not like it's actually a part of any military organization that is in real life uh, mm-hmm. this, do, I mean, there maybe could be some parallels, but they're not, they're not seeming to create a real political statement about the military that exists. Rather, they're giving a sort of fictional impression of what the military is, which I think w- the two of us definitely have more expertise in fictional military than we do <laughs> in real military. Yeah, certainly by a that, pretty wide margin. Yeah, certainly that would be a very interesting conversation to have with someone in the real military. Um, but uh, for us, this sort of what the impression that the show gets of military is that it's this sort of... Um, you know, shadowy organization, they have a lot of, they allude to the idea that Castor is going to create some sort of new wing of the military, that Dr. Cody and mother, you know, mother will be creating this new sort of military unit, and that they're going to be doing something that the other military can't do. What's unclear to me in the show is what exactly that thing could be. 
I mean, even though these people were indoctrinated early on, they don't strike me as any more indoctrinated or more effective than other people that they have uh, in the organization. If, if the experiment was, can we indoctrinate these kids from when they're a you know, big pile of puppies all the way to adulthood and make a better soldier, then they don't really seem to have succeeded. Like, they seem to have skills, but nothing more than the other soldiers in the show. And they, they don't seem to be creating like a big fleet of clones, right? So uh, I always have in my head like the sort of, uh, you know, when on, on the X-Files, when they walk into a big room full of tanks and you're just going to make just a, a vast right, right. number of people, like they never did that. There's no suggestion that what they're trying to do here is create a vast number of people. That was something that I really had a question about because it, from my perspective, it seems like we never got the sense that there were a huge number of caster clones. We saw a handful of them, I think about six of them. And I don't know that we got a huge indication that there was a lot more of such caster clones. I agree because with Project Lita, it makes sense that uh, you would want to keep the number of clones you're observing small because you really don't want everyone to literally be Tatiana. Right. <laughs> that would raise some suspicion. What are you saying, Dave? <laughs> <laughs> you only get so much difference from one set of DNA. You know? It's true. It's true. Um, but one of the things I was thinking about what might have been the purpose of the Caster Project, especially if you're keeping the number of clones small, is that you would want something like, you know, especially in our thinking about military these days, uh, things like SEAL Team 6. They're the group of specialized people that do the dirty work that other people aren't skilled enough to do. Mm -hmm. Uh, But in thinking about why you would want clones to be that elite task force, on the one hand, you would have the advantage that Elizabeth already mentioned of you raise up child soldiers into adulthood without having the moral sticky wicket of stealing an actual human-born child from their parents. Right. Uh, which is something they kind of hinted at in the latest Star Wars movie. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, another show I watched while it was on uh, was 24. And one of the themes that came out of that was, you know, Fox being a more right-wing network. We we need people like Jack Bauer out there who are sort of above the law, who themselves cannot live into the ideals of the American dream, but through being above the law, they allow everyone else to live into the American dream within the confines of the law. And one of the things his character demonstrated over, you know, maybe too many seasons <laughs> was the moral toll it takes on the person who has to be the individual that's part of the elite task force that operates above the law. Mm-hmm. So in, in, in a more tightly written season three, maybe that's what Caster was intended to be. We, we don't care about the moral toll it takes on these clones because as clones, they're in some sense already subhuman. So we don't have to protect their like emotional, existential dimensions of their dignity. We just put them in the field. Well, and especially since they have sort of a a built-in time limit. I mean, maybe that the idea that they would suddenly sort of break down, maybe that was intentional. You know, if you're if you want to build a task force that's completely outside the law, it would be to your advantage to have them have kind of a a sell by date so that (laughs) you could get rid of them when you need to. I mean, part of the thing that this idea of like, Oh, we need this separate person, which by the way is exactly how you get a Western. Like that is the classic Western idea. Um, like a, you know, a cowboy movie is that like, there are these people 
in this very fictionalized Western United States that can't, that have to be outside of the law because civilization is encroaching upon this wild territory. They're trying to be men and the women are trying to tame them is what you're saying. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. yeah. The women are creeping in from the East, you know, and trying to tame them. Of course, the the Western can only take place within a very, very narrow and highly fictionalized piece, you know, moment in time um, and really capture this idea with any kind of historical sense to it at all. And we take, but we take this idea and put it in a lot of other places. I, I would argue right. that in some ways, like 24 is a kind of Western and maybe just this idea in Orphan Black can sort of be a Western, uh, an idea at least drawn from the classic Western. And I think if you're if you're talking about contemporary storytelling, the Western is very specific to, I'm going to go ahead and say North American storytelling, American specifically, like U- U.S. specifically. But this idea of these people with all of this space that has that is wild and untamed, you know, this is something that's kind of unique to people who immigrated to the United States, who immigrated to Canada as well, I'm sure. There's still large stretches of Canada where there's not lots of people. So that's not something you find quite as much as like the more densely populated areas of Europe and places like that. Sure. And I think that was part of the attraction for Europeans to of Western stories, right? I mean, Europe mm-hmm. loves a good Western. I mean, especially like, I mean, it's kind of a cliche, but like, Germany loves a Western, right? So like there's this idea of that this cowboy, you know, notion really catches something in especially the masculine imagination, right? So mm-hmm. we talked, you know, people talked about that last time, but it it does definitely apply to this caster project. Sorry, it, Elizabeth and I did our English degrees together, so I think we just went off on a little tangent, but <laughs> But uh, but I did want to get back to something we were talking about, this idea of Castor indoctrinating children at at a young age into the military. You know, I think we also see this replacement of the family, like Dave mentioned, you know, you have to rip these children off out of their families to go and have them be soldiers. But in this model, the, the family has been replaced by the military, which we see very clearly the fact that they call Dr. Cody mother. And and so I wonder if we got a sense that that strategy was effective for Castor at all, like replacing the family with Castor itself. Well, I don't know. I mean, in the sense of you have to have a clone to do this, I don't think it works because, I mean, this, I mean, people have families of choice all over the place. So I'm not sure that it helps us make sense of why Castor needs to be clones. Mm -hmm. But it, it certainly worked in the sense of these people are you know, do treat, don't have attachments until they go out into the the world, right? right. Um, once, once they, you know, get up from the uh, secret base, right? They immediately start forming attachments outside of their little elite club. And uh, I mean, that's why you get, you know, caster clones falling in love. I mean, you know, like this is, right. this is a problem for the structure that they've created because they, they can't, you know, that's not really built into the programming, right? That's not something that they want to happen to these people. They want, if the reason that you're building a clone is that you want to make sure they don't have attachments by creating a real emotional human being, you know, with all of the trappings, they've made it so that they're going to seek out new attachment. So, And I think you saw the different sides of that 
but with Rudy and Mark, right? Because Mark is the one who went out in the world and formed, found a little family outside of Castor. And then you have Rudy, who's, you know, as he's dying, he's talking fondly about sleeping with all of his brothers in a big pile and their breathings being commingled. So I think they do try to bring out the different sides of that aspect of the Castor project structure. Sure. Absolutely. So in thinking about what the purpose of putting these you know, of making these clones at all would be for a military organization or a fictional military. Um, we were talking earlier about how it might be just that the military is building a badass weapon kind of a storyline. Mm-hmm. And Dave and I were thinking about all the different places where this storyline seems to be happening still in stories with a fictional military. So, I mean, the one that immediately came to mind because it's a pretty recent film is uh, in Jurassic World. I mean, no spoilers, guys, but one of the main things is that (laughs) the military is trying to make uh, raptors, like velociraptors, into some sort of weapon, Mm-hmm. Which is just, I mean, think about it for five seconds and it's so stupid. I mean, even if you could train them, like they are, you know, unpredictable. It's it's a wild kind of a thing. Like even if you have a, you know, human raptor leader, like ugh, they're, they're completely unpredictable <laughs> and they eat so much. I mean, I just feel like it'd be a terrible thing. And it, I, I feel like that whole military is building a badass weapon storyline, it seems to be the default storyline for when non-military entities, like, you know, properties try to bring in a military aspect, right? Because I'm thinking of like Buffy the Vampire Slayer yeah. and the whole thing with the initiative is building boring, boring Adam, you know, <laughs> like it just seems to be a default that a lot of writers go to. Yeah, the current Marvel Cinematic Universe, at least twice now, both with the first Iron Man and with Ant-Man. It's there's a private company developing some sort of advanced weaponry for the purposes of selling it to the military or when it gets more nefarious, some other group. Right. Well, because all of these sort of uh, we're building a weapon that's going to be the greatest, latest and greatest doesn't really fit with real life very well. I mean, I know that these are all highly sort of sci-fi fictionalized things, but I mean, it's it's one of those things where, especially when what you're creating here as your badass weapon is just more people, um, mm-hmm. not necessarily even as exciting as Adam <laughs> from Buffy. <laughs> I mean, that's that's pretty sad, guys, um, because they're just people. I mean, they're not they're not super soldier in any Captain America kind of way. They're not. I mean, they're not stronger. They're not faster. They're just maybe less attached to a family outside of the military. Yeah. And mean, it's not even like neolutionist where let's make a super soldier that sees through sonar like a bat and can be better at fighting at night. <laughs> I realize your budget would go way up if you're trying to portray a character like that. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, I, I mean, it would be neat. And I, I think that there can be a lot said for it if uh, in the next couple of seasons, maybe we see more of sort of how they might tweak the human being. In other words, mm-hmm. if all you're making is just a person, then I feel like in the world, we do a pretty good job of doing that in the traditional sense, like in the traditional <laughs> way. There's 7 billion of us in the world. If all you're trying to do is just make more people, I feel like we're, yeah. We got that down. We got that yeah. down, guys. Yeah. 
Um, yeah, every other episode of Mori Povich is like, we have another human here. Where did it come from? <laughs> <laughs> so if if we're if we're good at making people, then what's the advantage of making a clone? And like we were saying at the beginning, there's sort of three, maybe three, and there's probably a lot more reasons why you might decide to make a clone. So it, it's just it, it's going to be important as as the show goes along that they get us back to like, well, why are they doing this? Like, what was the motivation? Uh, and if part of the motivation, especially for the neolutionists is we're going to make a better uh, human being, like whether that's better is like a better with a tail or crazy eyeballs or, you know, uh, you know, supersonic hearing or something. I mean, whatever it is, uh, I, I hope that we, we really attach onto that because that's going to help us understand why we're cloning in the first place. But do you think the way that Orphan Black executed the storyline that ultimately the caster clones were the badass weapon? Because we do have the introduction of this off-the-books research that Doctors Cody is doing about how the clones sterilize the women that they sleep with. Yeah, that, okay, that's an interesting part of the storyline that I just didn't quite understand. Like, okay, so if <laughs> the purpose of these weapons, if the, if you're right, if the, if the improvement on human beings that they've made for the Castor Project is that they sterilize the women that they sleep with, I don't understand how that's an effective weapon. Like to for anything. Like, I mean, I guess if your, if your war is like a, you know, I just don't get it. Like, like we said, nobody's really having that much trouble making a lot of people in the world. I mean, yes, there are, you know, higher and lower birth rates in different regions, but it's not to the point where, uh, you know, preventing a certain region's birth really does that much to their military prowess, you know? Mm. Um, I just don't understand how that's going to work. I mean, I feel like, first of all, especially since they all have the same face, like, if you try to do this on a large scale, word's going to get around pretty quickly, you know? <laughs> and I just don't see people, you know, the people that they're sleeping with being that strategically important, if that makes any sense. Like, what what's the strategy here? I mean, you're just making women miserable. That's a pretty um, you know common thing to do, but I just don't see it being a very effective weapon yeah. in any kind of war. Yeah. Your source of nationalist pride isn't going to be. We have more barren women than you have. <laughs> it's just yeah. I just don't. I, I I think honestly, this whole idea of the sterilization it works. It works okay short term. Like the idea of it is, I think, pretty shocking and almost more insidious than if they had been trying to build some sort of big explosive device. Like the idea of violating women's bodies intentionally in that way, I, I feel like is pretty darn evil and is definitely it re resonates with the themes that we've seen on Orphan Black. And and I think maybe. Also, it could be alluding to the fact that in in areas of war, areas of conflict, rape is often used as a as a weapon. And so I think it works okay as an idea, maybe, like a concept. But then when you start to think of the nuts and bolts of how would they actually execute this, it's where it gets fuzzy for me. Yeah. yeah. I, I I agree with what you've said there. I think they got this sense of wouldn't it make Rudy and that other clone, I forget his name. <laughs> Seth. 
Seth, yeah. When they join in together and take hair and they keep a, a scrapbook of hair and they're sterilizing women, like these are genuinely creepy, disturbing things. And then once they thought of these as uh, they have their entertainment and shock value, now we have to reverse engineer an explanation for them. Uh, that's where they ran into trouble. Right. It's all about the why. If, if, if it's just a sort of, wow, that's really creepy. You know, I'm, I'm sad that that happened. Um, then it's completely effective. But once you sort of back it up and make this, uh, any part of their purpose about actually sterilizing women, cause I, I, I'm sorry, I don't remember the whole speech, but Dr. Cody does indicate that this is part of their purpose, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, so th- that part actually is the one spot where I get really sort of, where I don't understand where they're going. Like if that was just sort of a handy side effect and super creepy, that's, mm-hmm. that's one thing. But if part of their purpose, you know, if they're actually trying to engineer them to go to these places and, and sterilize women, then I just don't understand how that's a very effective weapon. Yeah. Because I think ultimately we're not supposed to necessarily believe that the way they would deploy this would be, you know, land some caster clones in an area and just tell them, go for it. Uh, you know, they they definitely were trying to figure out a way to, you know, how does this work biologically and how can we duplicate this? But I think it, I'm just not able to grasp how this could possibly be mechanized, mechanized as a weapon. I'm just kind of like, um, yeah, that didn't work for me. I think that's kind of where I'm at with that storyline. Yeah. So the reason I thought opening up with that framework of here are three reasons to clone and, and sci-fi circles might be helpful for a conversation like this is if you think the framework makes sense on the surface, how do we fit the caster project into this? Because like the, the sense I got in the season two finale is we're going to see the male militarized version of a cloning program. But I think because the writing staff strengths after working with the clone club for so long has been about, you know, true humanity is true humanity. No matter how it's arrived, you must recognize its dignity, even if it, you uh, produce this life through cloning. Like those themes couldn't help but start to dominate the caster story as well. So it creates something where, one, you don't have as much differentiation from the Clone Club storylines anymore. But then also you're left wondering, okay, why did we introduce the military angle again? What is it telling us that we weren't already getting mm. from the Tatiana characters? It's true. There's no there's no distinction between the two sets because, and this is to their credit, they're trying to give even these caster clones some humanity. Right. Right. So if they were to dehumanize them to the point where they're just sort of, you know, robotic, uh, you know, uh, again, that sort of sense of we're just going to make a lot of puppets for ourselves to, you know, go be military, an effective strike team or uh, a big mass army that would make for a more effective military strategy, maybe Uh, again, fictional military strategy here. But it would make for very good storytelling, right? It, in other words, it's more interesting to us to see them struggle to be human. And I think the final topic that I wanted us to talk about, because I remember as as we were watching season three, Chris and I, we noticed the fact that there was a lot of torture toward especially the beginning of the season. And this isn't necessarily unique to season three. 
we did have back in in the first season, you know, poor Vic the Dick getting his thumb, you know, cut off or pinky cut off, excuse me. You know, it, so it's not like we'd never seen bursts of very intense violence on the show before. Uh, but, you know, I'm thinking specifically of the scene where we see Helena waterboarded. And then in subsequent episodes, we see Delphine, or maybe this before, we see Delphine like pressing on Rachel's eye. We also see Mark torturing, I forget his name, but the the racist dude that had some stuff that, that Gracie's father had left with him. So we, we get a lot of torture, explicit torture, especially toward the beginning of the season. And at first, you know, when we were watching, I remember Chris and I thinking, well, maybe they're going somewhere with this. Maybe they're making some, they're going to make some commentary using these really explicit images. But I'm not sure if that ever fully panned out. And I was curious about your your two thoughts about it. Well, I mentioned 24 earlier. And, you know, when something's a Fox show, uh, something that feels like more extremist right-wing tactics don't usually uh, get defended. They're just kind of presented. But I'm wondering if, if only for narrative purposes, if the writers of this show are like, if you need to get information out of a reluctant person quickly, this is a device by which to get it. If you want to tap into audiences' senses of what already counts as unacceptable torture, well, we all know about waterboarding. So if you really want to hate these military characters and how they torture, well, look what they do. It's not just a thumb in the eye socket. It's this straight-up, terribly dehumanizing practice they're doing on a character you're already endeared to. Mm -hmm. It's almost like a shorthand for these people are bad and, and right. they're, they're doing something to your character that you like that is unacceptable. I mean, it's, um, and, and even with Delphine, it's sort of a, a way of set of really making you question a character that you wouldn't otherwise be likely to question. Right. I mean, we mm -hmm. like Delphine. It, it took a lot to sort of make us, you know, reel back from Delphine. So, uh, just being cruel is a way to, to get us there quickly. I just remember, especially the waterboarding scene, a lot of viewers reacted really strongly and, and asking, did we really need to see that? And I think me personally, I accept that sometimes upsetting things make it into things that I, I love, but I, it's acceptable to me and it doesn't just feel gratuitous if it is used effectively in, in, you know, serving the storyline in some way. And I'm just not sure if they got quite there when it comes to the, especially the waterboarding scene. It, like you said, it seems more like just shorthand, which maybe could have been accomplished another way. Sure. I mean, it, it's a, it's, I think part of the way that the whole military storyline part of Caster was less effective than we really wanted, just because it doesn't seem like they were very committed to the idea of this military project in the way that there doesn't seem to be much explanation for it. I'm just not sure if, if, if what you're trying to do is just give us a quick and dirty, this is the, the bad part of the military. Like then you have a character waterboarded like that. It's, I, I won't call it lazy, but it is just sort of a narrative device to get us there. And I think you're right. I think there are probably other ways we could have gotten there. Although if, again, if the rest of the military stuff would have worked out a little more cleanly, if we would have understood these people as a more distinct piece of a, a fictional military, then maybe it would, we would have been okay with it. I'm still sort of giving it the benefit of the doubt 
because I don't think the storyline's quite over. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, Dr. Cody's still around. So I'm just sort of waiting and seeing. Although, yeah, for the season itself, I don't think it really worked. Dave, did you have anything else you wanted to add? One other thought I was just having is, you know, watching a lot of entertainment that's directed towards masculine values, which is probably, you know, 98% of what's out there. (laughs) Uh, That you would have a situation where in the spur of the moment, someone you're not used to using physical means of coercion to get what they want, like Delphine, I'm sort of conditioned by what I tend to watch to not really be struck by how out of character that might be or how I don't usually see that in my entertainment because I do usually see that in my entertainment. So if you take a program that in the best sense has a lot of feminist values in it and brings in a lot of viewers that aren't used to watching, you know, just like Quentin Tarantino movies in 24, uh, (laughs) having this conversation with the two of you is illuminating to me why that would be such a shock to someone. Mm Yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you both for joining me to talk about this really interesting stuff. I, I, lo- I love it when I get to talk to you guys. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, we love it too. Yeah, it's nice to not just hear your voice in my apartment, but get to engage it. <laughs> <laughs> Where can folks find you on the internet should they wish to? Uh, well, you can tweet at me at ecoody. So E-C-O-O-D-Y. And uh, if you tell me something for Dave, I'll, I'll um, tell him. <laughs> yeah. Because uh, right now, Dave is trying to finish his dissertation. So he is yeah. off Twitch. <laughs> yeah, he he only accepts uh, carrier pigeons at the moment. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> yeah. And I'm kind of an old man when it comes to technology. So my web presence is only a little bigger than my grandfather's. <laughs> <laughs> Which is not much. <laughs> Well, thank you again so much for for joining me to talk about Castor. I really appreciate it. Oh, you're welcome. We're happy to talk to you. A lot of fun. Thanks for having us. If you have thoughts about the Castor Project or about this episode, please send them to us. You can send an email to feedback at tatianaiseveryone.com. You can leave us a voicemail at 972-514-7223. You can also record a voice memo on your smartphone and email it to us. You can leave a comment on our show notes at Tatiana is everyone.com slash 93. You can find us on Twitter at TIE Podcast. You can also find us on Facebook and Tumblr. And in this episode, Dave's dissertation was played by Tatiana Maslani. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.